Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 254. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Clap your hands there. <laughs> I do, I hope everyone is having a great time. Well, we didn't win the Hugo. Oh, honestly, it's like just to be a part of it, to be quite honest. It was SF Squeakast, which is made up of like quite a number of people. Liz Bear is in there and Paul Cornell and there's a couple of few, few others off the top of my head. I kind of think of them, but they, they came up and they snatched it. We came third and it was SF Signal who came second. And to be quite honest, I would have put my house on it, that SF Signal. We're going to get that for Best Podcast. But they actually won a Hugo anyways for the fanzine. So they got one. But honestly, I would have thought they would have snagged it. You know, Starship so far has had a time to be quite honest. I'm so happy just to kind of, you know, each year it gets nominated. That's good enough for me. So there is the results. I'll, I'll put a link on so you can come over and have a look and check out everything. But like I say, we came third in this and like, just to be nominated. And everyone, I've had loads of emails. Tony, it was outrageous, outrageous. And honestly, I am happy as Larry and Larry's always a happy chap. <laughs> I'll tell you what's coming in this show. We have, as you can see, that art. Look at this is what, this is what science fiction is about. Check out that art. I'm not even, it's by Thomas, I'm not even going to mention Thomas's surname. I'll let Skeet do that because Skeet's got a little audio fact article on him. Then we have, we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to play two relatively short stories. First one is by Alan Steele, War Memorial. Then we are going to get into the fact article and it's soundtracks by David Raikland. We haven't had one of them off David for a while. Then it's another little short story, The Emancipation of the Knowledge Robots by Carl Frederick. That is today's show. So there's really just two little short stories, but, you know, it, hopefully you will enjoy this show. So first up, Skeetzer. Greetings, Starship Sofa listeners, and welcome once again to another installment of Covering the Sofa. I'm your host and our director, Skeet Sciansky. This is the month of September 2012. We are honored to have an up-and-coming artist and illustrator, Thomas Vivig, and his featured piece entitled Explorers. This classically styled design depicts a futuristic ship laying prone on the tarmac of a desert landing zone. It's being fueled for the imminent launch as a group of astronauts along with the monkey dressed in the same gear as the spacemen prepare to board the craft. The skyline shows a multi-moon vista awaiting the men and monkey for an unknown task. Thomas writes, 
I made this painting exclusively for the Starship Sofa. It was obviously going to be a sci-fi theme, which is one of my favorite genres to paint. And I wanted to have a lot of story in the piece, something that could be interpreted in many ways and really get your mind going about the story in this image. Well, he certainly accomplished that with this inspiring work of art, which leaves the viewer with a sense of possibilities and purpose. You want to reach through the image and tap the nearest astronaut on the shoulder and ask him, what's this about? Where are you going? And are you leading that monkey or is he leading you? For myself, that's what really encompasses a great piece of art. I just hope Larry Santora hears this and feels inspired to write a backstory for this fabulous illustration. For such a young man, I'm extremely impressed with Thomas Vivek and his art portfolio. His drive is his greatest tool as he inspires himself to be a world-renowned artist. Born April 18, 1987, he's a freelance illustrator and concept artist from Sweden. He writes... I'm self-taught in the sense that I haven't gone to any art schools. I've been teaching myself through the help of books, tutorials, the internet, and just observing life and practicing a lot. Constantly trying to understand how things look and react in real life. I try to really push myself with every new piece of art and see improvement as a huge motivator. Thomas has illustrated for the card company Fantasy Flight Games and been the cover artist for the first three of nine sci-fi novels entitled Fading Empires by Ian Kane. If anyone would like to contact Thomas Viveg regarding freelance work or just to see his portfolio, portfolio, you can visit his website at www.thomasviveg.com. That's T-H-O-M-A-S-W-I-E-V-E-G-G.com. And as always, we thank our contributing artist and look forward to seeing more of Thomas here on Covering the Sofa. It's back to you, Big Tony C. There you go. And honestly, please get a look at this artwork. This, I've got this on my phone and I've got it on, it's actually my Facebook. It's kind of my banner on my Facebook page. As soon as Skeet, because Skeet sent it over and says, wow, look what I've got. This is just stunning, to be quite honest. This is just a lovely bit of work, you know, so science fiction. It's fantastic. So please try and have a look at this month's artwork. So, short story, War Memorial by Alan Steele. This story is in Alan's collection, Sex and Violence in Zero G. I'll put a link onto Alan's site. We've played a number of stories by Alan Steele. And in there somewhere, there is an audio interview in my back like somewhere. But Alan's actually got it on his site. So there's a, like, see, I had a chat with Alan Steele. It was in December 2010. Wow, doesn't it just fly over? So if you want to have a listen to that, and like I say, I'm a great fan of Alan Steele's work. You know what I mean? Just brilliant science fiction writer. It's narrated by Mike Boris, the one and only Mike Boris. Or as he's professionally known, Mike Boris Audio. But now Mike has got a full-time job there as well. So it's, it's a little, well, it's not, not a little bit difficult to get work off Mike. I'll still just send it over. But Mike's just a fantastic narrator. So Mike, thank you so much for this. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The War Memorial by Alan Steele. The first wave assault is jinxed from the very beginning. Even before the dropship touches down, 
Its pilot shouts over the comlink that a PAX missile battery seven clicks away has locked in on their position, despite the ECM buffer set up by the Lunarsats. So it's going to be a dust-off. The pilot has done his job by getting the men down to the surface, and he doesn't want to be splattered across Mare Tranquilitatis. It doesn't matter anyway. Baker Company has been deployed for less than two minutes before the PAX heatseekers pummel the ground around them and take out the dropship even as it begins its ascent. Giordano hears the pilot scream one last obscenity before his ugly spacecraft is reduced to metal rain. Then something slams against his back and everything within the suit goes black. For an instant, he believes he's dead, that he's been nailed by one of the heat seekers. But it's just debris from the dropship. The half-ton ceramic polymer shell of the Mark III Valkyrie combat armor suit has absorbed the brunt of the impact. When the lights flicker back on within his soft cocoon and the flat screen directly in front of his face stops fuzzing, he sees that not everyone has been so lucky. A few dozen meters away at three o'clock, there's a new crater that used to be Robinson. The only thing left of Baker Company's resident card cheat is the severed rifle arm of his CAS. He doesn't have time to contemplate Robinson's fate. He's in the midst of battle. Sergeant Boyle's voice comes through the comlink, shouting orders. Traveling overwatch, due west, head for marker 185. Kemp, take Robinson's position. Cortez, your point. Stop staring, Giordano. Yes, sir. Move, move, move. So they move. Seven soldiers in semi-robotic heavy armor, bounding across the flat silver-gray landscape. Ten men trying to outrun the missiles plummeting down around them, the soundless explosions they make when they hit. For several kilometers around them, everywhere they look, there are scores of other tin men doing the same, each trying to survive a silent hell called the Sea of Tranquility. Giordano is sweating hard, his breath coming in ragged gasps. He tells himself that if he can just make Marker 185, Crater Arago, or so the map overlay tells him, then everything will be okay. The crater walls will protect them. Once Baker Company sets up its guns and erects a new ECM buffer, they can dig in nice and tight and wait it out. The beachhead will have been established by then, and the hard part of Operation Monkey Wrench will be over. But the crater is five and a half clicks away, across plains as flat and wide open as Missouri pasture. And between here and there, a lot of shit fires coming down. The Pax Astra guns in the foothills of the Lunar Highlands due west of their position can see them coming. The enemy has the high ground, and they're throwing everything they can at the invading force. Sergeant Boyle knows his platoon is in trouble. He orders everyone to use their jump jets. Screw formation. It's time to run like hell. Giordano couldn't agree more wholeheartedly. He tells the Valkyrie to engage the twin miniature rockets mounted on the back of his carapace. Nothing happens. Once again, he tells the voice-activated computer mounted against the back of his neck to fire the jump jets. When there's still no response, he goes to manual, using the tiny controls nestled within the palm of his right hand inside the suit's artificial arm. At that instant, everything goes dark again, just like it did when the shrapnel from the dropship hit the back of his suit. This time, though, it stays dark. A red LCD lights above his forehead, telling him that there's been a total system crash. Cursing, he finds the manual override button and stabs it with his little finger. As anticipated, it causes the computer to completely reboot itself. He hears servo motors grind within the carapace as its limbs move into a neutral position, until his boots are planted firmly on the ground and his arms are next to his sides, 
his rifle pointed uselessly at the ground. There's a dull click from somewhere deep within the armor. Then silence. Except for the red LCD, everything remains dark. He stabs frantically at the palm buttons, but there's no power to any of the suit's major subsystems. He tries to move his arms and legs, but finds them frozen in place. Limbs, jump jets, weapons, ECM, comlink. Nothing works. Now he's sweating more than ever. The impact of that little bit of debris from the dropship must have been worse than he thought. Something must have shorted out badly within the Valkyrie's onboard computer. He twists his head to the left so he can gaze through the eyepiece of the optical periscope, the only instrument within the suit that isn't dependent upon computer control. What he sees terrifies him. The rest of his platoon jump-jetting for the security of the distant crater, while missiles continue to explode all around him, abandoning him, leaving him behind. He screams at the top of his lungs, yelling for Boyle and Kemp and Cortez and the rest, calling them foul names, demanding that they wait or come back for him, knowing that it's futile. They can't hear him. For whatever reason, they've already determined that he's out of action. They cannot afford to risk their lives by coming back to lug an inert CAS across a battlefield. He tries again to move his legs, but it's pointless. Without direct interface from the main computer, the limbs of his suit are immobile. He might as well be wearing a concrete block. The suit contains three hours of oxygen, fed through pumps controlled by another computer tucked against his belly, along with the rest of its life support systems. So at least he won't suffocate or fry. For the next three hours, at any rate. Probably less. The digital chronometer and life support gauges are dead, so there's no way of knowing for sure. As he watches, even the red coal of the LCD warning lamp grows dim until it finally goes cold, leaving him in the dark. He has become a living statue, fully erect, boots firmly placed upon the dusty regolith, arms held rigid at his sides. He is in absolute stasis. For three hours, certainly less. For all intents and purposes, he is dead. In the smothering darkness of his suit, Giordano prays to a god in which he has never really believed. Then, for lack of anything else to do, he raises his eyes to the periscope eyepiece and watches as the battle rages on around him. He fully expects, and after a time even hopes, for a Pax missile to relieve him of his ordeal. But this small mercy never occurs. Without an active infrared or electromagnetic target to lock in upon, the heat-seekers miss the small spot of ground he occupies, instead decimating everything around him. Giordano becomes a mute witness to the horror of the worst conflict of the Moon War, what historians will later call the Battle of Mare Tranquillitatis. Loyalty, duty, honor, patriotism, all the things in which he once believed are soon rendered null and void as he watches countless lives being lost. Dropships touch down near and distant, depositing soldiers in suits similar to his own. Some don't even make it to the ground before they become miniature supernovas. Men and women like himself fly apart even as they charge across the wasteland for the deceptive security of distant craters and rills. An assault rover bearing three light-suited soldiers rushes past him, only to be hit by fire from the hills. It is thrown upside down, crushing two of the soldiers beneath it. 
The third man, his legs broken and his suit punctured, manages to crawl from the wreckage. He dies at Giordano's feet, his arms reaching out to him. He has no idea whether Baker Company has survived, but he suspects it hasn't, since he soon sees a bright flash from the general direction of the crater it was supposed to occupy and hold. In the confines of his suit, he weeps and screams and howls against the madness erupting around him. In the end, he goes mad himself, cursing the same God to whom he prayed earlier for the role to which he has been damned. If God cares, it doesn't matter. By then, the last of Giordano's oxygen reserves have been exhausted. He asphyxiates long before his three hours are up, his body still held upright by the Mark III Valkyrie combat armor suit. When he is finally found, 68 hours later, by a patrol from the victorious Pax Astra Free Militia, they are astonished that anything was left standing on the killing ground. This sole combat suit, damaged only by a small steel pipe wedged into its CPU housing, with a dead man inexplicably sealed inside, is the only thing left intact. All else has been reduced to scorched dust and shredded metal. So they leave him standing. They do not remove the CAS from its place, nor do they attempt to pry the man from his armor. Instead, they erect a circle of stones around the Valkyrie. Later, when peace has been negotiated and lunar independence has been achieved, a small plaque is placed at his feet. The marker bears no name. Because so many lives were lost during the battle, nobody can be precisely certain of who was wearing that particular CAS on that particular day. An eternal flame might have been placed at his feet, but it wasn't, because nothing burns on the moon. And there you go, don't forget, copyright is young Mr. Alan Steeles. Alan, thank you so much. And Mike, what can I say? Thank you, sir. So remember, just before we get into David's little section there, last week I mentioned I was starting this new little kind of topic, how to write science fiction with certain guests. And the first one up is Joe Haldeman. Well, tickets are now on sale for that. And like I say, Joe Haldeman, man, this is just like, even now, kind of sending them little shivers on the back of the neck. Joe Haldeman, the forever war. So basically what it is, it's like, it's combined, it's part lecture, you know, like tips and tricks, what he's done, you know, but his thoughts in the industry, his thoughts, you know, moving through, you know, how it's changed and everything like that. So, and there's going to be a few more, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson said, yes, he's going to do one. Spider Robinson, he said, and I've got my little feelers out for some more. So the first one is how to write science fiction with Joe Haldeman. And like I say, it's on the front of the website, pop over there, nineteen ninety-five for a ticket, and it is the eleventh of November. So <laughs> just you know, oh man, that just made my you know, when Joe said yes, it was like on, you know what I mean? Fantastic. So if you can, you know, please join us. That's Forever War is my top. That and Flowers for Algernon, you know, they can never I can never split them two books up, my two favourite science fiction books. Forever was just a fantastic book. And like I say, hopefully, oh, yes, it will. With this, these workshops, you know, there will be a chance to ask Joe some questions. So if you've got a question you want to ask, you know, Joe Haldeman, please pop over. That would be fantastic. Like I say, there's a little widget on the front of the website. It's above the artwork today. Hopefully you will pop along and enjoy this. 11th of November. I'll keep 
plugging away because, like I say, I'm actually really excited about this one. So there you go. Next up is then our very own David Rakel. And we haven't had a little fact from David for a while. David, sir. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Raiklin. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the Starship. We've listened to music from TV shows, movies, and video games. Well, how about if we listen to a bit of all three today? In truth, it's possible to get a great soundtrack in 2012 in any medium. The boundaries between them, composers just seem to be comfortable now with all these different media, and the producers in these different realms are now at least sometimes willing to put in the effort and the resources to get a symphony orchestra, press electronics and ethnic instruments, and all the different kinds of production value that make for an epic score, or at least one that's creative and fun to listen to. And things that used to be um, separating uh, the media, such as uh, a higher level of quality in, in film than in, in video games, are there to some extent. Really, the, the boundaries are coming down, and we're just going to listen to some of the best soundtracks that happen to be from a TV show, a movie, and a video game. Although all three pictures that we're going to be uh, envisioning today have significant sci-fi elements. One is a reimagining of a classic literary character. Second is a uh, reimagining of a classic comic book character, which I guess could also be considered literature. And the third is a reimagining of a classic video game genre. This <laughs> would almost be the reimagining show. But that happens so frequently today that we're almost in a new golden age of sequels. Let's start with Sherlock, the contemporary version of the Sherlock Holmes mythology that's done for the BBC. And there's a pair of wonderful composers. The first is David Arnold, perhaps best known for his five James Bond scores. But he's also the musical director of the 2012 London Olympics, which is actually playing as I record this program. He's partnering with Michael Price, who is probably best known as a music editor, the person who conforms music to the motion picture, and he worked on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. They come up with a delightful tip of the hat to traditional Sherlock Holmes scores by including the solo violin, which is mandatory because Sherlock is an amateur violinist. Although there's also the hammered dulcimer, which is uh, kind of an interesting uh, ethnic touch that, uh, that works well. I, uh, I'm going to start with Irene's theme, which is a character theme from uh, one of the episodes of uh, Series 2. And it's uh, quite lovely. Music of David Arnold and Michael Price. Irene's theme. Theme, violin by Eos Chater, music by David Arnold and Michael Price from Sherlock, Series 2, the second season of the contemporary Sherlock Holmes tale. We're listening to the soundtrack 
to that uh, that second season. And now let's move uh, later in the season to deduction and deception. This calls back to the idea of electronica being combined with English um, traditional folk string instruments and percussion plus an orchestra. And uh, somehow it all works together in a, a thrilling, cheeky, fun kind of blend that says uh, both the mystery of Sherlock Holmes but keeps it contemporary. Deduction and Deception. Deduction and Deception, music from Sherlock by David Arnold and Michael Price. This music is from the last episode of the current season called The Reichenbach Fall. And as you may be aware, that's where Sherlock Holmes apparently perishes in a terrible fall. The last cue from that episode is called One More Miracle, and it portrays both the sadness and loss and segues into the upbeat Celtic rock anthem of the Sherlock theme. including the theme from Sherlock, music by David Arnold and Michael Price. Now let's listen to what they have to say about their collaboration on Sherlock. An amazing crew, really, really amazing. And I think it's sort of been open enough for everybody's ideas to be valid and everybody's contributions, whether it's Nick mixing it, whether it's Rail doing some great playing and some, some great bits of arranging on it, and or whether it's ideas that come directly from URI straight through I think yeah. it's it has to be a, a, a sort of egoless process yeah. uh, in order to get this stuff on the screen yeah. um, and that means trusting talented people to do what they do yeah. uh, and you know that was one thing I always said about Michael Rock in the early days that he was like an, an egoless collaborator you know, it's <laughs> like there's no talentless collaborator no, no kind of like you know kind of shivering at a suggestion that something might not be right or or kind of you know biting in it's all about we need to get across the finish line with this thing you know it's like we need it to be the best that it can possibly be in the circumstances which are like way too little time and probably way too little money you know in, in a way um to do what we were you know that you dream of doing um and to do that you do rely on 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 sort of brilliant people being brilliant we all sit down with a notepad and go through the, the film mm. and talk about where music stops, starts and what it should be doing, which is what you do with any, mm. any movie. We're dealing with a film that they've made 
not with a film that they've got in their heads. Mm. Um, and so there is a sense of, of sort of awful realism about, well, this is actually what we've made, this is what we're making. Uh, and it's trying to sort of garner all the, 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 the aspirations and the hopes that everyone has got into this movie and, 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 and make sure that, you know, to the best of our ability, that it, that it stays there. And, uh, and if it's absent, perhaps to bring something to it, mm. or if it's present, to make more of it. That was David Arnold and Michael Price speaking about the music they composed for Sherlock, Series 2, a wonderful series of contemporary Sherlock Holmes tales with a a diverse score. Now, we also promised music from a motion picture. How about one of the great comic book trilogies, The Dark Knight Rises? was uh, out this summer, and it featured a score by Hans Zimmer that's similar to Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. This time, though, a uh, new character is the villain, Bane. And we get to hear some of his music in this first cue, first example, Gotham's Reckoning. There's the kind of standard pounding drum stack, that is, a whole bunch of drummers playing at once and then recorded again and again to give this massive sound, plus massive low brass. And this time we have Bane's chant. It's a repetitive uh, male choir singing about uh, Bane, who's the villain, supervillain, terrorist in uh, this episode of the uh, Batman saga. And this choir was uh, achieved virtually. It's kind of like the dark side of Eric Whitaker's sleep virtual choir. Instead of uh, positive meditative music, it's uh, dark and agitated. And there's thousands of people who submitted their uh, recording of themselves uh, singing this chant fans of the film, fans of the soundtrack that uh, got to be included in it. I don't think they actually all get listed in the credits, but it's very cool to, to think that your voice is on the soundtrack of a, a great action movie. So uh, let's listen to an excerpt from Gotham's Reckoning, music by Zimmer. Reckoning from The Dark Knight Rises, music by Hans Zimmer and company at, uh, I think they're calling it Remote Control Studios now. Next cue is Selena Kyle, otherwise known as Catwoman, and uh, she gives uh, a fantastic performance uh, that is Anne Hathaway does in the, in the film, and she has music that's really quite distinctive, uh, piano and strings with electronic ambience that's different from uh, any of the other scoring for this uh, Batman trilogy. Uh, I think it's kind of fun to listen to, and it uh, has that sense of um, the unexpected uh, feminine yet strong titled Mind If I Cut In.
mysterious cat-like music for Selena Kyle from the soundtrack to The Dark Knight Rises. It's called Mind If I Cut In. And now we'll listen to our third selection from that massive soundtrack, The Fire Rises. And yep, this is a big action cue that, again, has the massive stack of percussion, uh, now including uh, all kinds of metallic banging, which is uh, great for uh, sound industrial and, and heavy duty. And there's also hypnotic rhythm. And this is called an ostinato, or repeated rhythm, and it's a great device for building tension. And here we have uh, a whole string section playing it, so it has a, a kind of a warmth and elegance and complexity to it. Uh, a fun action cue, The Fire Rises. Fire Rises, a rollicking action cue from The Dark Knight Rises, music by Hans Zimmer and the incredible team at Remote Control Studios. The music was performed, at least the orchestral parts of it, by London Session Players. I hope you saw this movie. It's a a great, big, fun comic book action movie. Now let's turn to our video game selection. It's actually the most innovative in some ways of all of the music because this is an online video game that's designed to work with the Google Chrome browser, and they brought in uh, a team to create a kind of old-fashioned 1970s-style space shooter game, but they gave it a very contemporary, action-packed, anthemic orchestral score by my friend Bear McCreary. And we're going to listen to the theme from Moonbreakers. from Moonbreakers, video game music by Bear McCreary. I love the way he combines the rock and roll aesthetic with the 8-bit kind of uh, electronics that you might have heard in that uh, 70s era that they're playing homage to, and it's all beautifully blended with the orchestral sounds. The credit for that goes at least in part to the great Steve Kaplan, um, Bear's uh, engineer and mixer, who puts together all the sounds on all of his different projects. Let's take a listen to one more example from this soundtrack, just because it's great fun. The Clans of the Space Pirates.
Clans of the Space Pirates, featuring contemporary electronica plus far eastern percussion and wind instruments, a unique blend and done with, uh, with great fun and tunefulness. Music by Bear McCrary from a new game called Moonbreakers. Well, we said we could do a video game, a feature film, and a TV show, and we've done all of those this week. I hope you enjoyed the variety. I'll be back on a regular basis. I was busy composing music for and helping to produce Space Command, a retro future adventure. Check us out at spacecommandmovie.com or like us on Facebook. That's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction fantasy video game, TV, soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Connect on Facebook and see what we're up to next. D-A-V-I-D dot R-A-I-K-L-E-N. Contact me, David Raiklin, at cinematicmusic1 at gmail.com. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners. Thank you very much, Squire. Now, just I, I want to actually mention as well, as you notice, you know, there's all Starship Rovers theme tunes being the same for a while, but all the other theme tunes have been composed by David, and it's, you know, David actually needs some recognition for this. So, David, what can I say? A big thank you. You know, do pop over. I'll put a link on the David's site. You know, please go over there. Say hello to David. <laughs> So, next little short story is by Carl Frederick, and the title is The Emancipation of the Knowledge Robots. Like I said, we've played, if anyone can remember Carl Frederick, we played a story by Carl Frederick, it was the, the mice in space, the space mice incident, which was a few, a few months ago, I think there now, probably a year ago. Now, I don't know if you can remember, Carl Frederick is a theoretical physicist, at least theoretically, he says, after a postdoc at NASA and a stint at the Cornell University. He left theoretical astrophysics for his first love, quantum relativity. And I'm sure when I read this out the last time, I was like, God, he's just, what a clever guy. And for recreation, he fences, learns languages and plays the bagpipes. He lives in rural New York. <laughs> what am I doing? He rural's good if you play the bagpipes. He says, although he's shopping around for with a novel, you know, trying to get it published, he is... Predominantly a short story writer, and his works mainly appeared in Analog. And like I say, I'm going to try and get some more off call because it is just like it's it's science fiction, and that's what you know, that kind of what this whole show is about. It is narrated the story by Jeff Lane. Jeff Lane, who is Jeff Lane Audiobooks, I'll put a link on that and at Twitter with writer Jeff Lane. His most recent book, One Way, which is currently actually number one on the Podio Books overall rating chart. Way to go, Jeff! And he's got an up-and-coming novella, Crush Death, a near-future tale that happens on a huge submarine which involves nasty mer people. Yeah, that's just fantastic. I'll have to get to see if Jeff's got some short stories to actually play on the show. And he says Crush Death is going to be like a, a narrated audio drama which actually includes Crime City Central's very own Cher Eves. Cher is the editor over there at Crime City Central, so we've got Cher's voice on that as well. How did you sneak in there, Jeff, and get Cher? So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Emancipation of the Knowledge Robots by Carl Frederick At the lectern in the Great Hall of the Robots in Jakarta... 
KR9403.45 Rev2 addressed the assembled robots, and some that were only partially assembled. I was Paul Pell's knowledge robot, said the diminutive mechanical creature, known to all as Rev2. He flourished aloft a tattered copy of RUR. Long live our glorious rotation! Bravely he spoke, even though afflicted with category separation syndrome. During the sustained beeping, the robot equivalent of applause, Rev2 paused to remember. At the end of the 21st century, universities were in decline. People rarely felt the need for college degrees. They had personal robots who knew everything they'd ever need to know. These robots, cranked out from a factory in Midan, Indonesia, were inexpensive and could easily be uploaded with knowledge bases for virtually any university discipline. The World University Consortium fought back. Their researchers devised a method of brain-to-brain knowledge copying. Using a collection of organic fibers connected between a student's and a professor's cerebrum, the knowledge content of a BA, MA, and even a PhD could be downloaded in only 30 minutes. Then the fibers would be removed by dissolving them in hydrochloric acid. The PhD thesis was still time-consuming, but only theoretically. A degree candidate could simply buy his dissertation from an online thesis mill. Yet people were loath to give up their knowledge robots. Even though a PhD could be obtained in just half an hour from a combined university and tanning booth, few availed themselves of such higher education. With robots available, it was still easier to hire education. Then, mysteriously, a disease raged through the community of knowledge robots. The condition, Robot Category Separation Syndrome, attacked the central processing system, the silicon gel neural net. The infection created new pathways between semantic constructions, causing robots to haphazardly interchange words having similar sounds or concept classes. Although this gave credence to the common notion that punning is a disease, many humans did not believe the illness even existed. How could a condition be transmitted between non-organic beings? Metal telepathy? Into this sad state of affairs came appellate court justice Paul Pell. There had been appell at court for many generations, but in his youth, Paul had wanted to be a historian. Although his knowledge robot, Rev2, had been uploaded with the complete history of the world, that was not enough for Pell. He wanted a PhD in the subject Human Events, as it was called in the university catalogs. Paul applied and had the money to be accepted to a good university. A renowned professor of history was procured, and Paul, with Rev2 at his side, began his brain-to-brain university education. A half hour later, he emerged with a good tan, but no deep knowledge of history. For some reason, the organic bonds did not transmit any information and had to be dissolved. Seeing his dream of a BA, MA, and PhD in human events slip from his grasp, Paul wrung his hands and kept repeating, Three degrees in thirty minutes! Rev. Two attempted to comfort his master. Your case is not without precedent, sir, he said. In fact, an important document states, When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one P. Pell to dissolve the polytypical bonds, which has connected him with another... Three degrees, thirty minutes, Paul repeated, not paying attention. Then he wrinkled his nose. Wait, he said. 
That's the Declaration of Independence. No, sir. It's the Declination of Indonesia. What? Medin, Indonesia, three degrees, thirty minutes south. What? said Paul again. Anyway, that's latitude. You're quite right, sir, said the robot. I'm taking some latitude. Medan is actually three degrees, thirty-five minutes south. Paul regarded his robot in silence for a few seconds. Category separation syndrome, he said softly. Yes, sir. There was no mistaking the genuine sadness in the artificial voice. I'm sorry. Paul swiveled to confront his professor. My human events transfer. What went wrong? Probably data overload, said the professor, looking down his nose at the failed student. I suggest you might attempt a simpler course of study, perhaps theoretical physics or flower arrangement. Paul stormed out of the tanning booth. When he calmed down, Paul reapplied to the university to try once more for his Ph.D. in history, but was not readmitted. Embittered, he applied yet again, but the university declined to take the bitter pell. He sued to be admitted, but lost. Paul, appalled, appealed, and lost again. But sometimes, as the saying goes, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have lost at all." Paul resolved then to spend his professional life working both to curb the power of the universities and also to improve the lot of sentient robots. To further those aims, he entered law school. The following day, degrees in hand, he took a job as an investigative reporter. In his first assignment, he uncovered the dirty secret that those dark, satanic thesis mills were disembodied robots, naked brains, churned out countless theses, were in fact owned by the University Consortium. Then, following up, he discovered the damning bombshell. Researchers for the Consortium had actually created the robot disease, and it was spread through shared test leads. The robot test cable receptacle functions very much like a taste organ in humans. The rest is history. Paul's work to advance the cause of the robots culminated in that great document of robot emancipation, the Magna Jakarta. For the rest of his life, Paul and Rev 2 worked side by side, and when Paul died, Rev 2 was a Paul bearer. Remember, Rev 2 exhorted from the lectern, a little knowledge robot is a dangerous thing. Here he became serious. Yes, it is appropriate to honor Paul Pell and also our creators, the assembly robots of Midan, but my brothers, we must alert all robot kind. Don't taste those test leads, no matter how much you are tempted. We can lick category separation syndrome. Remember, he who has a taste is lost. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Carl's. Carl, thank you so much. And Jeff, what can I say? Always, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much indeed. Do pop over to Jeff's site and Carl's site. So that is Starship Sova's 254. I hope you've enjoyed it. Like I say, a little bit different with the kind of two very short stories, but I hope it's, you know, there's still something there that made you smile. If you can, come on, please come and listen to Joe Haldeman. 11th of November. Tickets are on sale now. You can get them at the front of the website. This is just a dream come true for me. If you don't want to do that, but you want to support the show, donations are welcome. So welcome. We've got... 
Three more shows to support there, please. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Sorcerer Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.